0: Um, If you turn to page 979 of the Church Bibles, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 24. It's the parable of the weeds. It kind of flows on from last week's reading, where the parable of the sower And here we have another agricultural picture in front of us. So Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, the master answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat. And bring it into my barn. Verse 36 Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered them, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, well, um, if you've ever visited the website Amazing Stoke, you'll have seen a cartoon. That cartoon originates from um, 1986, in fact. um, A friend sent me it just as I was about to come to Basingstoke. It was published in a now-defunct satirical magazine called Punch, and it had two recent arrivals in hell. And the caption read, It's not as bad as I thought it would be. I used to live in Basingstoke. (laughs) Well, of course, almost nothing in that cartoon is true. It's all erroneous. There are no tridents. There are no goatee beards. There's no fire. There's no awareness of other people. And, of course, Basingstoke is not as bad as that. I mean, oh, it's probably better than 90% of the rest of the country, really, when you think about what we've got, especially now we've got a weight rose. We haven't <laughs> gone up in the world yet. But it's a bit of a hill, I never go there. The, the younger staff seem to go there to buy things. But um, anyway, the one thing that is true, of course, about the cartoon, that is accurate, is that hell is for real. And the teaching of Jesus that we're looking at this morning is about heaven and hell. But most of all, it's about God's patience. His patience in giving us time to choose between heaven and hell, and his patience in giving us time to tell others the truth. Now, when we read the Bible, it's helpful to ask three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? and how does it apply to me? So let's ask those three questions of the parable that Jesus told. First of all, what does it say? There are verses 24 to 30. Now that story that we've had read to us is not hard to understand. There is a weed called darnel which is poisonous and which is so closely related to wheat that until the ears start to appear, it's virtually impossible to tell the difference between them as they grow up together. Now, if a landowner in the ancient world evicted his tenants, they would often sow the fields with darnel as they were leaving as an act of spiteful revenge. The Romans, therefore, had a law against it. Now, once the weed was identified, it was cut down, put into bundles, and used if firewood was scarce. So there's a little bit of agricultural background to just help us understand the parable. The question to ask, though, of a parable is this. What point is the story making? And the point here is a contrast The contrast between the servants and their master. To the servants, verse 27, the weeds are a big surprise and a big problem. And they want the problem to be sorted out now, verse 28. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? In other words, why don't you allow us to sort this out right now? Whereas the master, verses 29 to 30, is far more far-sighted and wise. No, he says, I'm not going to do anything yet. And he says that for the sake of acquiring the maximum yield to his harvest. Because right now it remains to be seen just which of these emerging plants really is wheat, and which is a weed. So that's what it says. It's a contrast between the short-sighted impatience of the servants and the far-sighted patience of the master who wants to maximise his harvest. Secondly then, what does it mean? Let me read verses 36 to 43. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels." So verse 37, the master in the story stands for Jesus, who's often his, his most favourite self-designation is the Son of Man. The field stands for our world, and the good seed stands for those on the side of having Jesus as their king, the sons of the kingdom. So the picture is of the Lord Jesus sending his followers out into the world to speak for him and to live for him among them. The weed stands for those who are not yet on Jesus' side. They're called the sons of the evil one, that's the devil, simply because if you don't side with the Son of God, by definition you're siding with the other option, which in this case is Satan, whether you realise it or not. Now, it may sound harsh to say that, but it's just really clear thinking. There are only two options. If you don't opt into one, you are by default in the other. I'm sure there are many countries in the world who would prefer not to get involved in the current war on terrorism. They'd like to behave as if they were neutral, to uh, pay less taxes so they don't have to spend it on security services and defense forces. But being neutral, doing nothing, means of course you are allowing the terrorists the possibility of existing. They may even choose your country as a safe haven or even a place where they can plan attacks on other countries because you're not doing anything to stop them. So to be neutral would be to help them. Then the harvest, verse 39, is the end of time when Jesus will come again to wrap up history and bring the living and the dead to account. And God's aim, verse 43, is to bring about a place that is perfect, unspoilt, unspoilt by sin that is, or any of its consequences. So we had a picture of place. But we don't need to have keys because no one's going to kind of walk in and steal things. We don't have to worry about walking home in the dark at night. We don't have to have pin numbers. We don't need hospitals because there's no sickness and there's no suffering and there's no death. But to do that means, verse 42, the removal of everything that causes sin and everyone who has chosen to the very end to stand against God Himself. Verse 41 The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The 18th century evangelist George Whitfield, a great friend of the Wesleys, whose first church was uh, down the next junction of the motorway at Dummer, preached up and down this country and in the American colonies between 1735 and 1770. And on this he said, all mention of hell should be done with a weight on the heart, and yet it must be done because Jesus taught it. But since these truths are so hard, let's stop for a moment and press pause and ask four questions and try and answer them that people commonly ask about the existence of hell. People often ask, are we to take this language literally? Well, elsewhere... You might recall, Jesus speaks of hell as outer darkness. And since you can't have darkness with fire, this must be imagery, intended, though, to get over the grim reality in verse 42, the reality of the pain of realising what you've lost irretrievably. Secondly, people often ask, Is Jesus trying to frighten us into a decision? You know, gun to the head type thing. To which I'd say the question is not, is he trying to frighten us? But is there anything to be frightened of? I don't know whether you've ever driven in France, but no worry if you haven't, because I notice increasingly we're adopting the same signs over here. But uh, they have at regular intervals on their roads saying in yellow, uh, the signs are, with black writing, sayings like, seven fatal accidents in the last four years. You drive five miles further on, seven fatal accidents in the last five years. And so it goes on. Are they trying to frighten us? Well, yes, they are. Do I resent it? No, I don't, because I think there is something to be frightened of. A friend of mine was actually killed in a car crash 20 years ago in France by a young driver coming over the hill at speed and partially over the wrong side of the road. Of course, driving a British car in that scenario, it is the passenger who ends up killed, although the driver and their two children in the back were fine. And I think any driver in their right mind should be frightened of that. Those signs are not merely frightening signs, they're warning signs. And any parent, especially of small children, knows that at the heart of a warning lies love. And it's in that spirit of loving warning that Jesus speaks about hell. His purpose is not to say, this is where you're going, as if he wanted you to go there. His purpose is to say, don't go there. And the fact that he died on the cross under the judgment we deserve so that we might not go there is proof enough of what he wants for us. And then thirdly, How can you believe both in hell and a God of love? To which I'd say, his justice is an expression of his love. A friend tells a story of a girl he knew. When she was at junior school, she came back home from school one day, having had a change of class with a new teacher. And she was very unhappy. And her parents asked what the matter was. And she said her new teacher didn't care. Well, of course, their initial reaction would be, has the teacher been unkind or offhand to their daughter? Or is she ignoring some bullying that her daughter's experienced? But it wasn't that at all. She never marks my work, was the daughter's explanation. Judgment, that's to say marking, is an expression of love. Not to judge is not to care. God's judgment says that we matter, that our choices in life do mean something. The alternative would be for God to say of everything at the end of the day Mm. that it didn't matter. That broken promise doesn't matter. The hurt we cause somebody ah, doesn't matter. Bosnia, Rwanda, ISIL, crucifixions, beheadings, rapes. don't matter. You see, if you're not yet a Christian, you may think believing in judgment is hard, but it's nothing compared with the alternative that you believe. If you don't believe this, then what you do believe is that nothing matters. There's no God, there's no morality, there's no accountability, no meaning, no right or wrong to any of our choices in life. That's not only harder to believe, it's actually impossible to live like that. And the fourth question that people sometimes ask, isn't the punishment of hell completely disproportionate to the crime of choosing not to side with King with Jesus as king? And the answer is no. The punishment is the consequence of the crime, the flip side of it, if you like. So if I behave so antisocially that no one will befriend me, if I reject all advances of friendship, all invitations of hospitality, I will be lonely. If you like, that will be the punishment of the crime of my antisocial behaviour. But the punishment is simply the consequence, or the flip side, of that action. It is self-chosen. When the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, was once asked if hell exists and what it's like, he said, my concept of hell, I suppose, is being stuck with myself forever, with no way out. To be stuck with my selfish little ego, all eternity. So if in this life we reject all God's offers of reconciliation and friendship, then we will be eternally alone without him. It's what we've decided. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his book, The Problem of Pain, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy, if that's the right word, forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are self-enslaved, just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become, through all eternity, more and more Now, I don't speak about hell with any pleasure. No Christian does. I simply teach it because Jesus taught it. And he said it to move us so that we might not go there. Lastly then, how does it apply to us? Now, we know what the details mean. We face some of the questions that people raise Let's go back to the story, verses 24 to 30. You remember the point was the contrast between the servant's attitude to the weeds and the master's attitude to them. Short-sighted impatience versus far-sighted patience. Verse 28. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull the weeds up? In other words... Why don't you let us sort this out right now? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, you may be somebody who has uh, not yet come back to be on the side of having Jesus as your king, to be a son of the kingdom or daughter of the kingdom. If so, you need to know how patient he's being with you. Now, as I look out on this gathering, I don't ultimately know who is a weed and who is wheat, who is on the side of Jesus and who is not. But God knows, and the reason God has delayed sending Jesus back to wrap up history is to give you more time to change sides. As in the story, who here is on Jesus' side and who isn't will emerge, just like what is wheat and what is weed in a mixed field will emerge. And Jesus, in his patience, is giving you time to emerge on his side. And if that's you, this parable says, don't take that time lightly. God is giving you time to act. Not to kind of shelve the whole issue. Not time to duck it you may need to start right back at square one, asking, is it true? Investigating the reliability of the Gospels. Or you may be further down the line. Wherever you are, whatever you need to do, on the strength of this parable, we'd have to conclude that now is the time for you to do it. So please use the time that you have, that God is giving you. Do keep coming along to church. Use our inquirer courses, if you'd like. Interrogate a Christian friend. You know, write out what your questions are, take them for a drink and kind of hit them with it. If you want to read a copy of the Gospels or read a good book like Turning Points, which outlines the Christian faith from beginning to end, and presents you quite clearly with the choice that becoming a Christian involves. Then there are some free copies on the reception desk and on uh, one of the uh, racks near near the entrance to church. Do take them if you'll commit yourself to reading them. (coughs) And then finally, others of us are people who've already come back onto the side of Jesus. And we need to learn to be as patient as he is towards those who haven't. Verse 28. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? Well, we've said that. After all, you know, he's uh, there thinking, it's not easy for the wheat to have all those weeds around them. Weeds are a threat to the wheat. Weeds can choke the life out of the wheat. Weeds can even kill wheat. No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow until the harvest. And the servants stand for the attitude that we Christians can sometimes fall into, the attitude that feels under pressure from the non-Christian world and its increasingly anti-God beliefs and values, at least in the Western world we can feel threatened. We can feel that the world is choking us Christians into compromise. And we're aware that in the world it can even kill Christians, right the way from Egypt to North Korea. So it's understandable that a Christian might wish to get out of that pressure, might wish the non-Christian world away might at least wish to separate from the non-christian world for a sake of an easier time but to those of us who call ourselves christians the parable says you need to learn to be as patient as god is towards the non-christian world it's horribly easy to be short-sightedly self-centeredly impatient with it to be concerned simply with my own comfort and freedom from the pressures that are out there. Or to withdraw into a separate world of church and Christian friends. Or to spend our time pointing the finger at the world and tutting and sitting in judgment. As if without Christ they weren't going to hell. As if they didn't primarily need loving and telling we must not become preoccupied with how difficult it is to be a Christian and it can be difficult or worse preoccupied in sitting in judgment on the world now Jesus would say is not the time for judgment now is the time for telling others the way to heaven namely that Jesus died for them to take on himself the judgment that their rejection of God deserves so they can be forgiven, change sides and start life all over again with Jesus in his right and rightful place in their lives. So how does the parable apply to us? Well, in a sentence. Whoever we are this morning, God is being patient with us giving us time to choose, or giving us time to tell others. Whichever of those we are, let's not take the time lightly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus, for its clarity. And we may uh, resist having such clarity such binary choices, but that's what Jesus says. And we pray that whatever side we're on, that we might use the time that is left to us aright to turn to you or to tell others. Amen.